0: I hope you were able to finish your reading in the story this week. We are in chapter 18. And after some pretty tough weeks covering the fall of the northern and southern kingdoms, we find ourselves in one of my favorite parts of the story. And it's one of my favorite parts because it proves a great truth about this God we've been studying. He never leaves us or forsakes us. No matter how far we stray, no matter the circumstances that surround, even in seasons of discipline, God is still there, loving us, fixing us, picking up the broken pieces of our lives, and yes, even using us, as he does with these four young men that we'll study today. So join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to see this great God at work even in the midst of exile. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather here today. Lord, we are so grateful for the way that you've been working uh, in this gathering called the church in our own lives. We pray that that great work that you have begun would continue now today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to take your rightful place in our church as our teacher and our guide, please lift up Jesus that he might draw us all closer to himself and that we may be changed into his likeness. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. So last week we talked about the fall of the southern kingdom known as Judah. Now, keep in mind, we know that God has a special plan for those people. And in in the upper story, the one who is coming that will bring us back to God will be actually called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so God has a special plan in mind for these people. And as we said last week, after Hezekiah, there were seven kings of Judah, the, the southern kingdom, but only one of them was good. And things got so bad towards the end, so bad with their idol worship, their sinful practices, the text actually says that they did more detestable things than any of the other surrounding nations. Now, just try to fathom that. The people of God that are supposed to be a light to the surrounding nations are actually worse than the surrounding nations. And God finally steps in and says, enough, that, that, that's enough, you, you will not defame yourselves, you will not defame uh, me any longer. And so he allows them to be defeated, taken captive to Babylon, and, and its king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And that captivity really happens in, in two phases. Uh, initially, the king of Judah just surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar removes a big chunk of the population of Judah initially, and then he's going to put a king... Uh, one that, that he can control, he thinks at least, over Judah, kind of a puppet king. Now that guy will make a grave mistake eventually and will rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And that's, that's when the second phase of captivity will come. Nebuchadnezzar will bring the full force of the army of Babylon against the kingdom of Judah. He will completely destroy it and burn Jerusalem to the ground. Now in the story this week, as we study uh, these four young men, we're looking at what happened during this first phase of captivity. And, and Nebuchadnezzar does something that's very interesting uh, to me. It should be interesting to us. I, I, I've, I've heard there was a common practice uh, amongst uh, kings of the day, but, but when Nebuchadnezzar, um, when Judah surrenders, he takes the very best that Judah has to offer. He, he removes the very best. He takes the very best fighters. He takes the best skilled craftsmen. He, he even takes the best philosophers and thinkers of their time. He takes the best educated. And, and if you think about it, this, is genius. If you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to increase your empire, if you wanted to make it better, then then and you conquered another, you would you would literally take the best that they had to offer, add their best to your best, and and you're gonna be better. And so this is what he does. And and out of this group that he takes captive, come four extraordinary young men, one we know by his Hebrew name, Daniel, the other three for some reason in church history we have remembered by the Babylonian names that are given to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the story this week traces their amazing lives and faithfulness to God as they find themselves in a foreign land. The king's plan was to take these best of Judah guys and Teach them how to be Babylonians, to get them to serve him. He would educate them, give them food and wine from his own table, and they would in turn serve the kingdom of Babylon. Unfortunately, for Nebuchadnezzar, even the food and wine would mean that these young men would have to compromise their faith in God. And so Daniel and his friends really do the unthinkable they kindly refuse. I'm on page 250 in the story. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And we're going to read all the way through verse 17. And this is what the word of the Lord says. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And Daniel will use this gift on more than one occasion with King Nebuchadnezzar, which will eventually lead the king seemingly to believe in Daniel's God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is quite the character. Not only does he have some crazy dreams, uh, he also has a little bit of an ego. one point, he builds a 90-foot statue uh, made of gold to himself, and he declares that everyone must bow down and worship um, when the music is played at at, at the consecration of this uh, statue. And that causes more conflict, of course, with these young men and with their faith in God. As, As you know, they're not to worship any other gods. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel will eventually serve under uh, other rulers of Persia, uh, a guy named Belshazzar, a king named Darius, a king named uh, Cyrus. Yet, in it all, in it all, God is going to be with these guys, right? In one instance, this king named Darius is going to pass a law that says nobody can pray to any god or any person except unto him. It's going to be problematic for Daniel, but but through it all, God is with these guys in the midst of their captivity. So what can we learn about God and about ourselves as we study this period in the life of these people of God? I've got three things for you this morning. And here's the first. I want you to understand this morning that we are meant to be and live as strangers in a strange land. Let me say that again. We are meant to be and live as strangers in a strange land. That is the first lesson that we learn from Daniel and his friends as people of God. As people of God, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to look different, to to act different, to talk different. In this story, they they chose to eat and to drink differently, right? And, and, And listen, this is the big picture of what's going on. God had to take them captive to remind them of His initial calling on their lives. God's calling on the people of God was always that they would be holy, that they would be set apart, that they would be different. This has always been his call upon his lives of his children. If you don't believe me, uh, look at this with me. I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. And I want to read this with you this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. And listen to God's call on his children. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. I, I, I want to read to you from the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus uh, chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. And, and the word of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, says this. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. To be my own. I've set you apart. right? Because this is the same truth that Jesus would reveal as he he talks to his disciples. And he prays to God about his disciples in John chapter 15 and John chapter 17, when he says that his disciples are in this world, but they're not supposed to be of this world. That we're supposed to be in this world, but we're not supposed to be of this world. We're not supposed to be like all the people that surround us. This is a theme of the entire Bible. In the New Testament, I think but my favorite passage that really sums up this, this principle of, of being called by God to live as holy and set apart as strangers in a strange land is found in the book of 1 Peter. I'm in 1 Peter Uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to read you verse 9 through 12. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as, get this, as aliens and strangers in this world. That is the call. I urge you, as aliens and strangers in this world, abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. He's saying, don't be like everyone else. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Do you see it? God's children who were called to be set apart from the nations surrounding them, instead had become like them, even worse than them. They conformed to the image of the surrounding nations instead of the image of God. And so God, in order to remind His children of their call to be set apart and holy, has to take them captive. He has to force their hand. He has to show them that they have forgotten that they are supposed to live as foreigners and aliens. And the only way to do that is to physically make them foreigners and aliens. Now every day as they wake up in captivity, they are reminded this was God's purpose for them all along. In their own land, In the great promise of God, they were supposed to live as foreigners and aliens. And now, every day, they will be forced to be just that. To be set apart. To live as strangers in a strange land. To be a light to the nations. And friends, I want you to know, that is the same call that we have today. That's the same call that we have today. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm in verse 14 and hear the words of our Lord Jesus. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And guys, that's got to mean something for us, that we, we are called to be the light of the world. We're called to be set apart, like up on a hill. We're supposed to be different. And and, and I hopefully say this to you this morning as a reminder, because I think, I fear that some of us may have slipped here. We have felt the need to fit in. Right? The, the need to look like everyone else. And, and this is sad, because as adults, that we're still struggling. That we should have nailed this down in middle school, middle school, right? I mean, God has designed us to stand out, not to fit in. Yet, Yet here we are, I know adults that are compromising themselves, right, for a need to fit in. All the people at work are talking about certain television shows, and so, so here they are now, they're, they're, they're watching Game of Thrones and Westworld, and Orange is the New Black, just because they, they want to be a part of the, the conversation, right? That's, that's ridiculous. I know adults that go out after work to, 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 to be with their coworkers and, and they feel the need to have more than one drink or to drink at all for that matter. And guys, we know the Bible says it's okay to drink, but you can't get drunk. You can't compromise your standard. There's always got to be a, a, a spirit of self-control. To my students this morning, I would just say to you simply this, right? We're going to get here eventually, but the law of the land says that, that you can't drink till you're 21. So, so it's off limits for you entirely. Yet here we are feeling pressure, making bad choices because we desire to fit in, right? As Christians, we don't have to laugh at that off-color joke. We can walk away, or better yet, we can explain why we're going to walk away and then do so. Holy is the call. God says, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart as I am set apart. In other words, be like God. Be his representatives here on earth. That's the first point. We are meant to be and live as strangers in a strange place. And friends, I fear we've gotten a little too cozy. Second thing I want you to see this morning is this faith is knowing that God has the power to save you and trusting that He is good even if he doesn't. Let me say that again. Faith is knowing that God has the power to save you and trusting that he is good, even if he doesn't. Now guys, I want you to hear me clearly when I talk about God saving us. I'm not talking about salvation in this instance. The Bible um, says, this is the promise of God, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God will always save those that call out to Him for eternal salvation. That that promise is always true, okay? What I'm talking about in this instance specifically is the circumstances that surround us. What I'm saying is, faith is knowing that God has the power to save us from the circumstances that surround us, uh, and it's trusting him that even if he doesn't, he is still good. That's the point. This is an amazing statement. There's this amazing statement said in this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And Nebuchadnezzar erects the 90-foot tall golden statue. He gives instruction at the sound of the music that is played. Everyone must bow down and worship. And the music plays and the people bow, but some are peeking. Right? That means they're not actually worshiping, by the way. We have this problem in church today. Uh, we, 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 we want to worship God. There's music playing. God's tugging on our hearts. We're thinking, well, maybe I'll raise my hands. And then we look around. At everyone else, that—that's that, by the way—that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to just be looking unto the Lord. But, but so we're we're afraid. We, there's an invitation at the end of the service, and we feel the need to come forward and pray. But we don't want to stand out. I'm just going to challenge you this morning. That's not real worship. These people weren't really worshiping. They were peeking as they were bowing down. And what they saw were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down. And so they come before great king Nebuchadnezzar. They say, oh mighty king, oh great king, beautiful statue, man, it looks just like you. That nose is perfect. They say, oh king, the three that you care about, that you have elevated with Daniel to such great place, those three are not bowing down. Nebuchadnezzar is irate. He calls them before me. Why are you not bowing down? I erected the statue. I gave clear orders that you had to bow. Why are you not bowing down, and so uh, he's, he's upset, and I want you to hear this morning, I want you to hear the response um, from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now I need you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3, <coughs> Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 16, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I'm going to read through 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. This is great. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment and, and just say how beautiful that statement is. Oh King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves. Boy, howdy, brothers and sisters. I tell you what, if you took that approach in life, you would save hours every week. If you just decided, I'm, I'm not going to waste my time trying to defend myself, boy, would your life be better for it. You would have so much time to do all those things that, that you're hoping to do. And so they, they just say, this: we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God that we serve is able to save. They say, our our God is mighty. Our God is powerful. Uh, My God is able to save me. They say, our God is able to save us from it. And He will rescue us from your hand, O King. But then get this. This is a huge statement. Verse 18. This means they really understood the goodness of God. Get this. Verse 18. But even if He does not... We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. But even if he does not, of course we read what happened, King Nebuchadnezzar got so mad, he turned up the furnace furnace seven times hotter, it's so hot. Uh, he, has, he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, bound and, and, and the guys that bind them and carry them to throw them into the furnace. The furnace is so hot that they're burned alive. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall into the furnace, and and they're unharmed; they're unscathed. I, I guess their shackles or or, or or the ropes tying them, whatever, are, are burned away. But but they themselves, not even a hair on their head, is singed, and they're walking around. and Nebuchadnezzar is saying, "How can this be? Look, look, there they are. There are three of them. No, wait. There's a fourth. There are four men walking around in the fir- furnace, and they're they're not hurt at all. And so he calls out to them, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out. Of course, the fourth one, he said, that fourth one looks like the son of God. Commentators have had uh, all kinds of uh, fun with that comment. I, you, you find statements like that throughout the Bible, and uh, many would tell you that that, that was probably a pre-incarnate. Jesus showing up on the scene, right? Now, you don't have to believe that. You say it could be an angel, but I would just say to you, there are often times in the Bible when somebody says, hey, and, and that person was shining like, like the glory of God, or they, they appeared like the Son of God, and, and uh, okay, yeah, why not? I buy that. I buy that. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls out to them, three men come out. They don't even smell like smoke. You you get that? They don't even smell like smoke. Now, some of you are heading off to Morales here after the service, and you know what's going to come, right? You're going to get the fajitas. I'm a fajita man. I love the fajitas. You're going to eat them. They're going to be delicious. You're going to go home, and about three hours later, you're going to smell your shirt, and you're going to smell like Mexican food, right? That's what's going to happen. But these guys are in the furnace, and they come out completely unscathed. They don't even smell like smoke, and somebody says, wow, wow. What, what, what is this? What is this that we are seeing on display? And the answer, my friends, is faith. Faith is what we see here. These men believe that God has the power to save them from the flames and that He's gonna do it. They say, Our God is able and we believe that He will save us. But get this, they say, even if He doesn't, even if our God chooses not to, we are not going to bow down to a false image. And that statement is huge because what they are saying is that we trust our God, that He is good. We know that He has the power to save us. We know that He is able to save us. And we are going to trust Him to do so. We're not going to conform to the people that surround us. We're going to put our full faith in God. We're going to, we're going to stand firm here. And we're going to do so knowing that if God chooses not to save us, it must be because that is what is best. That is a tough word to hear, isn't it, friend? This is one of the toughest lessons I believe the Apostle Paul ever learned, that God can remove the thorn. He is able, but sometimes it's best if He doesn't. Sometimes it is best if He doesn't. Why is one healed of cancer physically, and another is taken home to be with Jesus? They're healed eternally. Why is that? And the answer, right, is is I don't know. I I don't know, but what I do know is that God is good. He is good in both cases. And hear this, this is our aim. This is where we need to aim. This is where we need to get to. Our prayers need to sound something like this. Ready? Even if you don't know. Even if you don't, Lord, my faith is in you. Right When, when the circumstances surround you, when, when, when the count is full, what do you do? Ready? I'm going to tell you what to do. You swing away, man. You pray. Man, if, if we learned anything watching the Houston Astros in the World Series, it's that you don't let one come across the plate. You swing away and you never know. It may just hit that bat and fly out of the park. Right? I mean, God may just show up in such a way that, that it is a grand slam and the game is over. God may show up in such a way that that cancer is completely removed and the doctors are dumbfounded. Like, like God may do that. But, even if He chooses not to, God, I know that you're good. That's where our prayer life needs to get to. God, please remove this thorn. God, please fix my marriage. God, please change this job situation. God, please heal me of this disease, right? God, I'm swinging away. But even if you don't, I will remain faithful because I know that you are good, even if you don't. That's got to be the place we get to, okay? Got to be. Last lesson, number three. Ready? This morning I want you to understand that when man's law contradicts God's law, we must always obey God and be willing to face the consequences. Right? When man's law contradicts God's law, we must always obey God and be willing to face the consequences. Last big event in our reading in the story this week was Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. And this is a this is a tough one, Darius, uh, who, who was king at this time. Um, He really likes Daniel. In fact, he appointed 120 satraps to rule over the province. Those are governors, basically. I mean, to rule over the kingdom. Those are governors of provinces. There are 120 different provinces, evidently. And so he's got these satraps, these governors that are going to rule over them. And and, and Daniel was was the best. And and so the king knows that. He's probably the king's favorite at this point. And the king is going to put him in charge of everyone else. Kind of think about like like Joseph was with Pharaoh in Egypt. He's going to be in charge of everything basically and now these other 120 guys or 119 guys i guess is daniel's one of them um they get super jealous they, they get super jealous i mean a lot of these guys are probably homegrown folks and here's this outsider and why why, why daniel why does daniel get to do this and 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 they, but they have this problem they want to find something against daniel but like we read in in second peter right uh he he's living such a good life that the, though the pagans are trying to accuse him, they, they can't find anything. And so, so what they do is they decide, you know what, if we're going to catch him in anything, we're probably going to catch him in something having to do with his God. And so they come up with a scheme. and It's pretty brilliant. It's diabolical, really. Uh, but he, the scheme is this. It's, it's listen, let's, let's convince Darius to pass a law. Let's play on the king's pride. A lot of times, people in positions of power have have a pride issue, and so way to get to them is to play on their pride. And so they come up and say, "Oh, King, live forever! You're great. We've got a great idea. We think uh, that next month should just be your month, right? I mean, I mean, in in today's culture, think, hey, listen, um, we're not going to have February anymore, but we're going to call it Darius." And in the month of Darius, um, we think everybody should love you so much that they shouldn't talk to anyone else. They shouldn't talk to any other God, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't pray to any other man. They're just going to pray to you, O king, um, because you are so good. And, and it plays on his ego. And he says, oh, you know what? That's a great That's a great rule. And so he signs the decree. He signs it. Now, once it's signed, sealed, and delivered, law back then said there was no way that even the king could change it. It was written in stone. So what does Daniel do? Of course, Daniel does what he always does. He prays to God. He prays to God three times a day, morning and noon and night. By the way, if you're one of those people that say, like, listen, I know my prayer life is suffering. I know the Bible says I need to pray without ceasing. I just don't know how to do that. I would say, start where Daniel does. Why don't you try praying three times a day? At least pray when you get up in the morning and pray um, during your lunch break and and pray uh, before you go to bed or in, in the evening with your children. Like pray three times a day. Like that's a good place to start and then eventually maybe we'll be praying as we go about all things in our day. And so Daniel, of course, does what he always does. He prays to God and these men catch him. And they come back to the king and they say, oh, Darius... Listen, reign forever, oh great king. Uh, listen, there's a problem. Daniel, your guy that you want to put in charge of all things is not obeying this written law. Now, Darius wants to change the law, but he can't. His hand is forced, and he says, Daniel, I'm so sorry, but the law said that you couldn't pray to anybody or you had to be thrown in the lion's den. I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. My hand is forced. And so he throws Daniel in the lion's den, and he says this to him, may your God rescue you. Of course, God does. God steps in and shuts the mouths of the lion. Darius comes out in the morning, calls out to Daniel. He's there. It'll lead to issuing a decree that everyone should worship Daniel's God, not speak against him. Now. It's interesting. Now listen, there's a lot of ways we can go with this, right? I mean, that traditional preaching thing would be something to the effect of, Well, call on the name of, little, of the Lord, and, and whatever the lion is that, that is facing you, God will shut the mouth of that lion. I mean, it's something like, I don't know, I'm just saying, if I were that kind of guy, that's what I would do. I mean, just you, it's a name name that problem, God's going to shut that mouth, and, and we've heard that, and listen, that, like, that's true. Like God will, God will do that. I mean, he can do that. God is able, right? But even if he doesn't, as we learned with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, God's able. But there is another lesson here about what Daniel does that I think is really important for us as Christians. And, And that's a lesson about what do we do when the law of God seems to be in conflict with the law of the land. Because we know that according to the book of Romans, Every authority that's been placed over us is actually been placed over us by God. And so I want to read Romans 13.1 for you. And this is what it says. It says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, now a lot of Christians throughout the ages have read that verse, and they have taken that to mean that you should never stand up against any government whatsoever. They believe that it is a call to passivism. It's led to some tragic consequences for some Christians. Uh, it really has. But, but listen, as we study the Bible, we find instances like this. Uh, Like like Daniel, we have instances at the birth of Jesus. We have instances back in the Old Testament with, with Moses. There are times that the people of God stand up to the law of the land because the law of the land is contradicting the law of God. Right? So someone says, well, what do I do? Do I always do what authorities say? What the law of the land says, and, and my answer again, like high school students, I'm just here to tell you, the law of the land says you can't drink, so you can't drink. So, so the, like, like that, is, that is the law, and there's nothing in God's law that would go against that, so, so you have to, you you got to do that, you got to obey that, okay? Alright, but listen, we, our, our goal, do we always obey the authorities? The answer is absolutely yes, Right? I need to always obey the authorities. And guys, this this applies as Christians, right, to speeding. We've been there. We've done it. There's a law of the lens. says, hey, like, listen, don't go faster than that, right? I mean, there's a law that says, hey, you're supposed to stop at the stop sign. I have first-hand accounts that what that means for you is that your car actually has to, like the nose, has to physically dip, said the officer that pulled me over. Luckily, he was very kind and gracious. I learned a lesson that day. I'm sharing it with you. So the answer is, do I have to follow, the answer to the question, do I always have to follow what the the authorities say? The answer is yes, ready? Yes, always, except when what they say flies in the face of the commands of God. I'm going to give you some examples, all right? Um, When Jesus is born, King Herod says that all of the baby boys are supposed to be killed by the midwives. What do the midwives do? They refuse, they don't do it. They don't do it. They don't do it, right? You, you think about when Moses is born. Pharaoh had said at that point that all the baby boys for population control, all are, all are supposed to be thrown into the Nile. Moses' mom doesn't do it, right? The Bible says clearly, do not murder. Like, don't, don't murder. And so they're not going to murder the, these children. They're just not going to do it. All, all over the world... There are governments that are telling Christians not to gather together for worship. They say they can't um, sing and pray and, and, and sing spiritual songs. Now, that's actually a command in the Bible. Not to forsake the assembly that we're supposed to gather and sing psalms and, 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 and spiritual songs. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to hear the, the reading of God's word. Like that's actually something we're supposed to do. And so what do Christians do all over the world? All over the world today. They, they, are, they are breaking the law of the land because the, the law of God is greater. And so they are, they are listening to the commands of God, which say, don't forsake the assembly. They're showing up and they're worshiping God, even though the law of the land says, don't do that. We go back a few years, hundred years. There was uh, a, a rule set in place, really, by the church at that time. The church had to do with government. You should know that. And so basically the rule was that only priests should know what the Bible says. The Bible had been translated into Latin. It was called the Latin Vulgate. And only priests were trained in Latin. And so the common man, you guys, me included, would would have come to church and we would have no idea what the word, what the Bible, the word of God would say. Now this is a problem because the Bible was told all people not, not just the pastor, not just the priest. He told all people to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. But there's a problem because people at that point don't even know what God has commanded. They only know what this person is saying. And so people saw a great problem with this. The Bibles, Latin Bibles were chained to pulpits. And so so they took the word of God and they translated and they put it in the common man's language. And people like William Tyndale were killed for it. He was hung and burned at the stake. Which is a group of people the Reformation, after the Word of God got put in common man's language and churches began to pop up and, and once men began to read the Word of God, they began to understand it and they ran across things like this. Like, like in the book of Acts, we learned that nobody is baptized until they come to faith in Christ. That, that you don't baptize somebody pre-conversion. They've got to be converted. They've got to see their need for Jesus. They've got to repent and then be baptized. Can't happen the other way. Can't be baptized and then repent of sin and receive Jesus. Got to repent of sin, receive Jesus, and then be baptized. And so these entire churches were popping up and saying, well, wait a second. The the, the law of God, the word of God says that we should be baptized now that we have received Christ by faith. And so entire congregations were baptized again. Called them Anabaptists or again Baptists. And you know what they did to them? They killed them. Their their favorite method for these Baptists was to drown them. To hold them underwater until the bubbles stopped coming up. And they said, you you can't be baptized again. And people stood on the word of God and said, no, God's law is greater. God's law is greater. Listen, I'm I'm not here to scare you, but You shouldn't be shocked if sometime in the not-so-distant future, somebody in a law office tells you that you don't get to tell your child that they are male or female. That they have to decide that at a certain age, that you don't get to check boxes. Listen, God has clearly defined who we are, the role of a man and the role of a woman God has made us different on purpose, different by design. And the law of God has to supersede the law of man. Makes sense? Obey the law of the land, but... When man's law contradicts God's law, we must always obey God and be willing to face the consequences. Now, how do we, how do we pack this up? I want to I just give you some homework as we head out of this place. Uh, and here's the first thing I would challenge you as you leave. Uh, really make this your motto. Ready? Don't be afraid to stand out. I mean, don't be afraid to stand out. God, right? He, he, this, this whole thing is about the fact God wants to be at the very center of our lives. He wants, to be, he wants us to be different. We are meant to be different. We're meant to be people of God. And so I'm just going to tell you then, be people of God. Do what people of God do. Talk like people of God talk. Walk like people of God walk. Love like people of God love. That's, that's, that's the call is to be different, not to hold a grudge, right? Not, not to, not to hate an enemy, but to love them, to, to walk the extra mile, to turn the other cheek, right? Don't be afraid to stand out. So you need to ask yourself this question Am I standing out or am I fitting in? And when you get to the, the truth of that, you may see the need to repent. It's, God, I am sorry. I, I, man. I've been conformed to the image of my culture, not to the image of you. Okay, second thing. First thing is stand out. Second thing is stand on. Ready? Number two, stand on the goodness of God. I want to challenge you to do that this week, right? Uh, make, make those We've all got problems. We've all got things we're hoping the Lord will heal us of. We'll, we'll remove the, the diagnosis or the disease or, or the distraction or the debt, right? And we're, we're crying out to God. And listen, uh, part of that prayer needs to sound something like this. But even if you don't. God, but even if you don't. That is standing on the goodness of God saying, God, I know that you're able And I'm going to trust that if you choose not to, or even if you say not yet, it's because you've got something better for me. Stand on the goodness of God. And lastly, we've got standing out, standing on. And the last part of homework this week, if we take the story home, is to stand firm in the face of persecution. Stand firm in the face of persecution as the the law of the land or as the culture would try to dictate to you how you are to act. If at any point anything opposes the law of God, you stand firm on the law of God. Now listen, I'm not talking about personal opinions. I'm not talking about Facebook. Guys, I'm talking about the law of God, the commands of God, the crystal clear command. Do this, don't do that, right? Right? I I, I am going to say this to you, by the way, and I'm not trying to knock you. Um, Here we are. We're almost at the end of January. We had a great run from the beginning of the school year uh, up through December um, and, and man I I was talking to you guys in, in, in the congregation you you were reading the story I had people that were chapters and chapters and chapters ahead and, and now I'm talking to people and I'm hearing more than one I mean, multiple people I, man I'm struggling I, I barely got my reading done or I didn't do it at all I mean we've even given you resources you can just go listen to it to get it done and this isn't about guilt this is, this is just I, I just say this to you in love right we'll never be able to stand upon the word of God if we don't know it. It just doesn't work that way. And so if we're going to stand up for God, if we're going to stand on his word, we need to make sure that we know his word, okay? So I, I just challenge you with that. Get back in your Bible. It is not a waste of your time. It is important. It needs to be one of the primary focuses of your life in Christ, all right? Pray with me this morning. Father God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to gather here. Lord, uh, this is a tough message for us to stomach at times, right? It it, it is tough to remember that you have called us to live as foreigners and aliens in in this place, as strangers in a strange land. And for anyone that's struggling with that this morning, that concept this morning, just as we spoke about it, they they felt in the pit of their stomach, um, yeah, that's me. Yeah, God, that's me. I, I know I look too much like the world, way more like the world than I do like you. I just pray this morning. Would you, just in their hearts, stir their affections for you and call them back home? Call them back unto yourself. Lord, for those um, that have struggled with your goodness, and they're fighting a great fight, the circumstances that surround them are so difficult right now, And, and, and they, they've almost felt like you're not good. Like you're not just, you're not listening. God, would you just remind them there's never a time that you can't be good. You are eternally good. Good is your character. That is who you are. You are always good and you will always do what is best for us, what brings you the most glory. Get us to that place in life that we are never afraid to ask, that we come before you with all things, but ultimately that we trust you and we trust your goodness and we would pray like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if you don't, Lord, even if you don't, I know that you're good. I will stand. I will stand for you. Lastly, Lord, um, I pray for those that feel that weight of persecution. God, help them to stand firm. When the time comes, Father, help us be found faithful. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for meeting with us. And it is in your name that we pray all of these things. Amen.